Literally Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we'll be discussing cost, performance, and evidence. We have three guests today. Ann Eberts, our AGA CEO. Nick Hart from the Bipartisan Policy Center. And Robert Shea from Grant Thornton. So welcome our guests, and let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking about cost, performance, and evidence. So we have three great guests today, and let's uh, let's have everybody introduce themselves. Let's start off with Ann. Hey, Paul. Uh, this is Ann Eberts. I'm the Chief Executive Officer for AGA, and happy to be with you this morning. Great. Robert? Yeah, I'm Robert Shea. I lead the Government Strategy and Transformation Practice at Grant Thornton, but was also a proud member of the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, which I suspect will come up in the conversation. That's where I got to know Nick. All right, Nick, how about yourself? Uh, hi, Paul. I'm Nick Hart. I work at the Bipartisan Policy Center leading our evidence project, and I worked for Robert on the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking staff. That's not what it felt like. <laughs> it felt like the other way around. Well, why don't we kick it off here? I think uh, something that a lot of folks really want to know is, you know, how do we determine, you know, what did we get for what we spent in the government? You know, this is a question that always comes up. Um, maybe Nick, kick that one off for us if you don't mind. Sure. Well, it, you know, it turns out it's a really complicated question to answer. Um, there are, of course, a lot of really important government policies and programs, and agencies are collecting tons of data about what they're doing. But one of the things that we often don't collect in the right way is cost information that sort of links together the activities that are happening on the ground and really detailed information about how much it costs to do it. And so I think one of the things that we're starting to see an evolution in some agencies for is really better syncing all of that data together in a way that's useful so you can do things like cost effectiveness studies where you're specifically syncing the cost information and impact or outcome estimates and then able to sort of compare the different strategies uh, across the spectrum. Right. I think one of the holy grails is being able to compare the cost effectiveness of similar programs or activities aimed at the same objective. Right. Uh, rarely do we really isolate the impact of a program. Rare still do we get cost aligned with that, but that's really what we ought to be focusing on because then you'll be able to invest precious taxpayer dollars for greater effect if we get there. Right, so to some degree, we're, we're trying to measure these things today, you know, but how well are we doing? Or, I mean, I would, I would guess a lot of uh, work still to be done. That's what you guys have been kind of investigating, right? Yeah. That, that's absolutely right. The, um, you know, Nick and I are to some extent riding a wave, uh, but passionate about advancing evidence-based policymaking. We want deeper insight into what impact programs are having, and we want to inject that into more decision-making, authorizing, appropriating, um, really also just managing the program. Um, but uh, the, the cost element really can't be forgotten. We do a lot of evaluating, billions are spent annually, and they don't look at cost, generally speaking. So the more and more we can do that, the better off we'll be. Because you'll make this information more useful. If we're about advancing policymaking, policymakers will find much more use in information that not only looks at performance, but also at cost. 
So I, I come from the field of program evaluation. It's what I did my PhD training in. And I, one of my great critiques of the field is that we're really good at studying impact and outcomes. Mm. Okay. But we're really bad at syncing cost information. And mm. in part, it's because in the field of evaluation, we're not trained to collect cost as one of the pieces of the evaluation. So just to give you a really uh, good example of an agency that's sort of changing the trajectory on this, the Institutes for Education Sciences have just put out a new sort of set of guidance around when they're doing evaluation contracts, they're also gonna ask about costs so that they can actually do cost effectiveness studies. And it's gonna be uh, really on the forefront of what I hope other agencies will start to do in this exact conversation going forward. But, uh, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. Right. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, you can spend all the money in the world and yeah, we're seeing outcomes, but okay, now we have, <laughs> we're, we're broke, we have no money left, or this is just not efficient, or it doesn't make sense. Well, I think, um, I think the t challenge too is we have, you know, in, um, 2014 when they enacted the data act so you collect and make transparent on a website where agencies are spending money but does it necessarily answer the question of what did i get for my money and from a citizen perspective and you know from an aga perspective we're all about transparency and accountability so right. you know are people accountable for the the proper use of funds and then also making sure that you know, what they're spending them for is, is benefiting the American public and that it's shared. So to the extent that we can, through this new act on evidence-based policymaking, um, support, you know, using that data to make the right decisions about where to place funds and or continue to fund programs or maybe stop funding programs if they're not having the, you know, the or demonstrating the benefits that we want them to demonstrate. Right, and you know, there's so many different players involved. I think it's where it gets a little complicated. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think CFOs basically focus on expenditures, budgets, things like that. You know, performance officers are focusing on outputs and outcomes. That's good. Uh, maybe a chief evaluation officer might be focusing on the impacts. But you know, what's the overlap here? And you know, what what you know, what synergies can we can we get from these folks talking to each other? I, I think they're different. Uh, e each of these silos have an important role. Um, we need to have a yardstick with which to measure uh, our progress towards our ultimate goals and that's really the role of performance management. Evidence takes a longer view. The, the, the evaluation officer's job will be to figure out what are the big questions we want answered and what rigorous evaluations can we um, employ to answer those questions. Uh, and then cost, of course, we've talked about this already. The CFO probably has the best insights into cost, but many other, you know, the, the CIO likewise is doing a lot to dig into what the cost of their um, systems are. Uh, there's an important, uh, it, it'll be important to integrate all of these if we're gonna get where we wanna go. Because um, you rem remember, if your, even if your performance data shows you're making progress, a rigorous evaluation may show other things are impacting your intended beneficiaries, not what you're doing. Uh, it may also show that there are more effective ways to accomplish your objectives than the ones you're employing. Um, but then again, uh, not to um, belabor the point, but at what cost? Um, the, the costing competencies um, need to be brought to bear in this conversation as well. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So for for as siloed as we sometimes view these um, different capacities, I mean, really we need good collaboration across all of them for the system to work as intended. And uh, it's unfortunate that collaboration is also really hard to do. Uh, so a lot of these authorities that come through legislation or uh, regulatory mechanisms, they sort of set some of these folks up in, in silos intentionally. And then at the same time, we're asking them to break down these <laughs> barriers that exist between them to work together more. And so it's a time-consuming, in some cases, costly activity to have good collaboration. But you know, we'll talk about the, the Foundations Act, hopefully, in a moment. And, and one of the goals there is to really encourage people to work together mm -hmm. more across as a system view rather than uh, in their isolationist uh, perspectives. But you know, to, to look at the isolationist piece, you know, OMB, uh, supports the CFO Council, the, the Chief Performance Council. I mean, so those are separate councils where, like, you know, folks get together and share their best practices. But I don't know of the instances where the performance folks and the CFOs get together and share, you know, about how much, whether, what they're spending on. Again, they, they talk about programs that they're focusing on. Um, but maybe not in coordination with the evaluation folks to say, okay, well, this is what we need more money for, or how do you get the programs across different agencies that are somewhat similar to share data with each other? So there's either less duplication or at least understanding of who's collecting what and for what purpose. I think it's the, it's the role of the Presence Management Council to ensure all that integration under the leadership of the Deputy for Management. But back in my day, we had the Quad Council. This was like a rogue meeting <laughs> of representatives from each of the interagency councils to sort of informally share what was going on. Was it a schism? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was sort of like some way to plug the fissures in coming out of the different councils. And I think some, uh, a mechanism like that would be well served to uh, improve integration between these councils and their initiatives. One of the things I was talking with Paul earlier about was, you know, GAO does their review on overlap and duplication of programs in government. I mean, might that also help some of those programs reach out to each other now that they're identified um, more openly? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, a great I mean, idea. Why not? Um, you know, if you think about it, the regulatory community <clears throat> has a pretty uh, I don't want to say robust, but they have a well-defined costing approach mm -hmm. because every regulation has to produce a cost-benefit analysis. Um, wouldn't we benefit from uh, collaboration with the CFOs and the regulatory community on what adequate costing methodologies look like? Um, I would dare say the regulatory community um, would be humbled if they had to adhere to some of the costing approaches that are employed by the CFO community. Um, but if you really, if you want a true view of what things cost or what you uh, estimate things are going to cost, um, I think improving our skill level at the same time would be better. Well, Ann, and what are some things AGA has done to kind of bring some communities together? Actually, working with um Robert and, and some of our other corporate partners, we uh, hosted a chief performance officer and CFO council or CFO off, you know, CFO um, 
group an event last uh, spring, and we brought the the two communities together and talked about the sharing of data and identification of you know how they can work better together and and leverage each other, um, and what the intersections are and maybe should be and could be better reinforced within other agencies that maybe weren't as you know where they didn't have people that were the CFOs and the PIOs that were kind of tied to the hip. Right. No, I think it's great. I mean, wasn't that the first time you all did that or in the let for this a while? Second. Second time. Okay. CFO PIO. But no. this when it, it was the first. Was it was the, the first inaugural. Yeah, it was, it was the inaugural. first one. And we also You're so deep in planning the next one that you think I, we've I had am. six. I am thinking about <laughs> the next one. Um, but we also had the American Evaluation Group oh. together with us. And okay. that was that was something different is to have the evaluation community really be the third leg of the stool. Right. Well, I think it's important, too, just because, you know, organizations like AGA to just promote that these are people that should be getting together and collaborating. And let's see some examples of things that are going well out there. You know, it's... it's so I, I, you know, that's great that you guys are doing that. Um, well, I want to dig a little bit into some of the legislation out there. So just in January, uh, the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act was enacted, um, and I'd love to hear you guys' uh, opinions on that. Well, you know, what did it do? What was the intent of that? Um, well, uh, I think this is a really exciting moment in our uh, country's history on the topic of developing research and evidence and then encouraging the use and I think the enactment of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, sort of a mouthful, yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is really going to be pivotal in changing the course of how we engage in some of these topics going forward. So uh, I guess one key point here is that that legislation, which was uh, championed by then-Speaker Paul Ryan and Senator Patty Murray, a Republican and Democrat, carried with it a, an incredible bipartisan wave of support. Mm -hmm. um, and it was intended to implement some of the recommendations that came out of the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, which Robert was, was a member of. And you know, fundamentally, it was about better using the data that government's already collecting to answer really important questions that we have. And it turns out there's a lot of barriers that exist for using data that government already has. Mm -hmm. uh, and so at its core, the legislation, well, the, the law, uh, now makes some of those data more accessible, and in some cases, uh, certain data will be more open and public. Um, and there are also these really important components about establishing leadership across mm -hmm. government agencies. And I, we've been saying leadership is important in this field for 40, 50 years. Uh, this is a really clear case where the law is going to operationalize that across the major agencies. So, for example, having chief data officers that can help coordinate data infrastructure and ensure that when we're collecting data, we're also planning for how we use it. Uh, maybe working with the CFO to ensure that the right kind of cost information is collected at the same time. Uh, it also directs agencies to have evaluation officers. So these are the people that can both help us produce the right kind of evidence, but then also play a really critical role in ensuring among senior leadership that that evidence is used and useful. Uh, so at its core, the legislation has some things around better capacity for uh, engaging in evidence-based policymaking, some uh, better mechanisms around access to data, and then also a whole suite of improved privacy protections, which are going to be really important for any time we're using data about people or firms. So, you know, one question I do have, though, is so I know we have a lot of data out there, but what about data quality, data integrity? You know, does, does this address that, or if not, you know, what, what do we do about that? 
Yeah, actually, there are some really specific provisions incorporated in, in the bill that really deal with data standards. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, we know that, let's say, government's collecting a lot of data from grantees, and uh, sometimes when we collect those data, they might have slightly different meanings. So the right. more we can develop quality data standards and ensure that there's at least some knowledge about how you connect different variables or, or data concepts together, the more likely we are to be able to use that data for uh, uh, studying outcomes. Right. And I think we've seen that the more collection and release and use of data, the more pressure there is to improve it. There's been a lot of work to standardize data in certain pockets mm -hmm. of the government. I think this will uh, begin a new wave of that. I think one of the things that was interesting in the act also is identifying a data inventory. So just understanding who's got what data and if you can make that available to researchers so they at least know where the source or sources of data lie. And then the other piece of it, which I've seen several other acts that have also tried to do this too, is reduce the burden on those requesting. So having a standard format mm -hmm. to request data. So it's not some different form for each agency, which, you know, from a grant making perspective, you know, grantees have to submit, you know, responses and, and information in so many different formats. And there are, there's, you know, there's le legislation now to standardize that to reduce the burden, not only in reporting, but also in, in requesting information. So I think that's, that's a good move. Well, you, if you remind me that this bill is a down payment on uh, a broader set of recommendations that the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act made. Um, this sets up a governance structure, makes some assumptions that data will be released, um, uh, important improvements to privacy that Nick mentioned. But the vision is for um, a national secure data service in which researchers can access uh, a wide variety of data sets that would ultimately reduce the time and cost it takes to get real good insights into our programs. Um, I hope we begin work on that pretty quickly. Uh, Nick and I, students of the legislature, probably learned a lot more than we ever anticipated <laughs> as we watched what was, you know, if you step back, it was a very quick and elegant uh, uh, process from introduction to enactment, but um, that hides a lot of the eddies that this bill took, uh, um, and, and a lot of which put its enactment at risk. Um, so heroic efforts to get that done, but really is just the beginning. Yeah, so actually the, the legislation includes something, uh, it's, it's an advisory committee for evidence-based policymaking, which is actually intended to help plan for the development of this National Secure Data Service. So it's a little bit of a tea leaf that at least Congress is interested in having that discussion going forward. So I think you know we'll see this second phase of legislation around the commission recommendations hopefully start to emerge in the near future. But uh, I think it's going to be a, a, certainly a long road where there's a lot of important conversations to have about how we develop that and ensure the privacy protections are strong, but also you know, that we're truly reducing burden on researchers mm -hmm. and the people who need to use the data to get good insights for government. Well, and uh, I just want to let our listeners know, so there is a, a paper, uh, kind of AGA-sponsored paper, um, and we'll, we'll have a link to it on the website. It's called Bridging Cost 
performance and evidence. Uh, and there were some great things in there. We discussed some of those, but there was another topic I wanted to bring up a little bit. Um, there's this concept of a learning agenda, and I'd love to hear more about what, what is a learning agenda and how does that kind of tie in here? Uh, well, the a learning agenda, uh, I think, was first employed at the Department of Labor. Um, they anointed a chief evaluation officer who, in collaboration with uh, agency heads and program leads at that department, um, came up with a list of the big questions they needed answered. And it was her job, Demetra Nightingale specifically, to procure the evaluations that helped answer those questions so that they could use the results of those evaluations in improving their programs. Um, and that's really the model that uh, was the basis for the Commission's recommendations and the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act. Um, more and more agencies are adopting this approach and the legislation hopes that they will adopt and embrace it um, so that uh, more and more um, agencies are focusing their evaluation resources on the big questions that they need answered, those things that can help them better execute their mission. We haven't talked about this, but with a lot of management improvement acts, there's a risk that this becomes a compliance exercise right. and not really integrated into the culture of the organization. So we would be well served to spend some time, energy, and intellectual brain power on figuring out how to genuinely change the culture of organizations so that they're more evidence-based. I have actually have a can I ask Robert a question? Please do. <laughs> so the learning agenda for each agency as they develop it, does that become public? Is that I mean, how do other people know about their learning agenda? Yeah, so the goal is that these are going to be public documents. Okay, well I mean, so I, th this is the really exciting thing here is that the intent is that it's sort of a research roadmap for evaluation. So asking these really big questions and being honest about what we need answers for going forward to make important decisions is really like a total change in strategy for how we've thought about program administration. Uh, so these have to be good discussions between program leadership, program managers, but also stakeholders of government programs and policies. And so it's not just about having a public document on the end, it's also about having some collaborative discussions. And I think that this is one of the cool things about uh, how we can ensure it's not a compliance exercise is that every stakeholder of any agency can play a role in uh, helping to frame what's available, what the key questions are, what the big decisions coming down the pike are, and to the extent we're truly honest about what those are, it's more likely that researchers and evaluators are going to be able to address the mm -hmm. right questions. But it's also making sure that these aren't these evaluations aren't used as hammers. Right. There's a there's often a fear that um, uh, an evaluation that attempts to uh, make a conclusion about the performance of a program will be used to its detriment, to eliminate it, to cut its funding. Um, I don't want to say that that's never an appropriate use for an evaluation right. because rigorous evaluations over time can show definitively something's ineffective, but that is very rare. And these evaluations really need to be used in a constructive way to improve programs, to help them better accomplish their goals. Yeah, it's no accident that it's called a learning agenda, not, right. uh, not a... 
cutting agenda. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. Well, but you know, it's it's interesting when you talk about the transparency piece and understanding and not having maybe negative or slower results than you think are going to happen be a hammer. And I, it makes me think of enterprise risk management. From that perspective, you know, it, it can be a risk to a program if you, you know, if something is taken that way right. you know, and used as a hammer. And enterprise risk management in, is still a culture change or a, a requires a culture change and it's still happening because that's still relatively new same kind of thing if you identify a risk are you going to use a hammer on me because i have a risk to my program right right is that identifying a weakness right uh, so it's, another you don't want it turned that way another side of that coin and this enterprise risk management methodology is maturing in the federal government mm-hmm. just like learning agendas and evidence-based policy making yeah. but if we're genuinely gonna uh uh refocus enterprise risk management on mission, mm-hmm. one of the big risks has got to be we don't really know whether our programs are working right. and a learning agenda is one of the methods we can use to, to mitigate that yeah. risk. Yep. Yep. Do you like that? You like I do. I, I like tying all that together. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, and you know, I'd love to hear uh, if, you has, if, you, if you all have any insight into what agencies are already doing this or doing a good job. Yeah, there are a couple um, Robert mentioned earlier Department of Labor, um, certainly uh, the Small Business Administration, and it's it's interesting, you know, when we talk about the synergies or linkages between the performance community and the CFO community, the CFO at Small Business Administration, Tim Griffin, is also their performance officer, so leading that charge. So we see, and, and I don't know whether it's coincidence that's a smaller agency, so that somebody is dual-headed in those areas, um, but certainly... Um, Tim Gribben has a tremendous amount of passion and focus and energy and expertise in this area. So I know they're, um, you know, they're identifying and uh, ways to collect data, share data, and it's a there's a good synergy certainly with the agency leadership. So the CIO, with, as far as protecting data, giving access to data, et cetera. And SBA is a great example for the learning agenda in particular because we've already seen good uses come out of them mm-hmm. putting out a public learning agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after they released the document, they started getting requests from researchers to use SBA data to answer important questions. Uh, there's also a whole bunch of other agencies that have really started down this path, and some had started before the commission released its report, but uh, agencies like NASA, the National Science Foundation, actually started learning agenda processes after the commission released its report. They come in a lot of configurations though, so uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, has something called a research roadmap that's basically mm. the exact same thing as a learning agenda. Just goes under a slightly different name. So I think going forward, we're gonna see lots of different formats and styles for these, even if OMB issues guidance around some common set of things that are necessary. Um, so it's probably admittedly gonna be a little tricky to figure out what's the learning agenda mm-hmm. versus something else, but. I think it's important that agencies have some operational document that they're working from and uh, and that we can all sort of use to help them move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so now the act is out on the street here. So if I'm an agency and I'm an executive leader, uh, you know, what do you guys recommend? What are first steps here? How do I, how do we start getting our heads around this? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, you need to uh, take some of the basic steps that the legislation requires anoint an evaluation officer, a chief data officer. Um, 
and begin a conversation internally about what are those big questions that are going to constitute a learning agenda. You need to beef up your evaluation uh, competency, um, which probably means hiring a new cadre of uh, staff um, with expertise to um, not only procure the evaluations you need, but also meet the data requirements of the legislation. Um, so those are a few examples. There's a lot of learning that can be done collaborative, collaboratively across these agencies. So um, I hope the CFO Council, the Performance Improvement Council, uh, and these emerging communities of evaluation officers and chief data officers can get together to share and grow together. I think it's most important to just get started on working on this. Right. Uh, I mean, there are so many agencies that have had little pieces of, of what, what's in the legislation for for years, but there's just so much work to be done to really improve this broad capacity, whether it's collaborating across these uh, different functions or building up the evaluation expertise, uh, you know, starting with good leadership and doing that quickly, identifying the folks that can really ensure that all of the subsequent policies and staffing arrangements come into, into place is going to be really important, but they just got to get started soon. Mm. So is there a challenge that, I mean, we, we hear in many, many discussions and, and, and educational events that, you know, there's the crowding or overcrowding of the C-suite, and this talks about two additional chiefs. Mm-hmm. Is it likely that agencies like Small Business Administration will dual hat some of these? Will the CIO take on the chief data officer role? Is that recommended? I mean, is that something you think will happen, won't happen, is likely to happen? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I think all of the above. Okay. The, we, we were pretty sensitive to the emergence of multiple chiefs. Yeah. Um, and so you'll see that the evaluation officer is not called the chief evaluation officer. It's just the evaluation officer. Um, I'm not sure that helps diminish the risk very much that there'll be another duplicative uh, management function. Um, Whatever the answer by agency, it's incumbent on the leadership, and in particular the uh, deputy secretary or deputy head of the agency, who is by statute the chief operating officer, to ensure integration and coordination among the various management functions and the programs. Um, And to make sure these roles are filled. The the roles are filled, that that the spirit of the act is is adhered to um, so that we can drive the intent forward. And I think one of the key reasons the commission made these recommendations is that in some agencies it's just unclear who's supposed to be the lead on these things. And so having somebody who's dual-hatted but is also clearly recognized as the person you go to on chief data issues or evaluation issues is really going to start to solve some of the problems around just making sure the capacity exists to execute the work. There, I've heard a, a lot of discussion about why we need, why do we need another chief to add to the chief information officer, the chief financial officer, the chief human capital officer. My answer to that is who else is asking whether what we're doing is working. So though those other folks have really important functions, you can make the finances hum, IT hum, you can have the most 
uh, superb workforce. Um, but if they aren't aligned towards activities that are producing important outcomes, then it's all a waste of time. Yeah. So um, that's the lens through which I see this. Uh, I'm not sure that's a majority opinion, but I do think somebody focusing on what's working uh, can really improve the cost effectiveness of the overall organization. That makes sense to agree. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, and of course, folks can also get more information and check out AGA's paper, which I'll give you a link to on the website. And uh, how about Nick, how about uh, your website? Yeah, we have lots of information out there on the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act and the Evidence Commission. Uh, you can go to our website, bipartisanpolicy.org slash evidence. Great. Well, with that note, uh, thank you all for, for coming today. And Nick, Robert, really appreciate it. This was a, a great uh, podcast, or great information. So thanks again. Thank thanks you. for having us. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks for joining us today. We have more information on our website, agacgfm.org. We'll provide you a link to the paper, Bridging Cost Performance and Evidence. And we'll also provide you a link to the Bipartisan Policy Center so you can read more what Nick Hart is working on over there. And we have many more podcasts, of course, coming up in 2019. So we hope you will all tune right back in. So until next time, this is Paul Marshall signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA.